Welcome to Jury Duty. I'm your host, Carrie Antholis. Season 7 of Jury Duty focuses on two sexual assault trials, the trials of Harvey Weinstein and Danny Masterson, that are currently taking place at the same time on the same floor of the Clara Shortridge Fultz Criminal Courts Building in downtown Los Angeles. As these trials wind down, we are bifurcating our coverage of them. On today's episode, we hear from our correspondent, Brittany Bookbinder, and a special guest about developments in the trial of Danny Masterson. That's all coming up right after the break. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. We begin today's installment with Brittany Bookbinder and her reflections on the Los Angeles trial of Danny Masterson. Brittany, thanks for coming on. Thanks, Carrie. It's great to be here. So as we await a resolution in the Masterson trial, you're going to bring in another voice to share his perspective on the case. Would you tell us who you're going to be interviewing? That's right, Carrie. You'll be hearing my conversation with Tony Ortega, who is a blogger for the Underground Bunker. And would you give us a bit of background on Tony? Absolutely. So Tony used to be the editor of The Village Voice, and he's now an independent journalist. As I said, he has a blog on Substack called The Underground Bunker. Tony has written extensively about Scientology for many years. He was included in both the HBO documentary about Scientology called Going Clear, and he was interviewed by Leah Remini, who is a former Scientologist, for her docuseries Scientology and the Aftermath. I wanted to ask Tony about his perspective on the trial because of the unique insights he could provide into Scientology, and also because he's been in attendance at the trial of Danny Masterson every single day. The journalists covering the trial often go to him because of his encyclopedic knowledge of the case, and he's also a frequent guest on Law & Crime's podcast, also talking about this trial. Sounds fantastic. Thanks, Brittany. And now here's Brittany Bookbinder's interview with Underground Bunker blogger Tony Ortega. I'm here with Tony Ortega, who's been covering Scientology and the trial of Danny Masterson for the Underground Bunker since the beginning. Tony, thank you so much for being with me today. Thank you, Brittany. You know, you and I have been in there in that courtroom day after day. Yes, it's been quite a ride, hasn't it? Yeah, something else. When and and how did you first learn about the allegations against Danny Masterson? And, And had you heard rumors of those charges before the charges were actually filed? I learned about the investigation uh, pretty early in 2017, and I I broke the news of it on March 3rd, 2017, when I had learned that the Jane Doe's were really unhappy with the LAPD in the investigation. And I had actually managed to get a copy of a letter that one of the Jane Doe's had written to the LAPD's chief, who at that time was Charlie Beck. And so in that first story... I actually had some quotes from that letter. I had uh, some images from the police reports. 
a lot of information right from the beginning about how these women had learned about each other and come forward, but right away they were really unhappy with how the LAPD was, was you know, they weren't calling witnesses. There were some questions about some decisions they had made. And right after that story came out, the LAPD switched detectives. And that, Brittany, you know that became a part of the trial itself is that the initial detective on it was a woman named Esther Reyes, and she was then replaced with Javier Vargas. And both of them testified in the trial extensively. And it kind of came up, and then they were they would get away from it about why did Javier Vargas replace Esther Reyes? But that that was a dynamic right from the beginning, five years ago, that that these women have been through so much to get to this point because for many years they didn't know anything about each other. Then when they did, they came forward and they've had issues with the LAPD, with the DA's office, of course, with Danny's defense attorneys. It's just been a real struggle for them just to even get to trial. So I was just very interested to see that they got their day in court. Absolutely. It seemed like both sides, the defense and prosecution, were very careful based upon the rulings of Judge Olmedo not to give any sort of implication that there had been wrongdoing necessarily on behalf of the LAPD. But is there anything to the assertion that Reyes did something wrong? Do you feel that the Church of Scientology did impede that initial investigation? And and do you think that changed when Vargas took over? Well, I think there's no question that when Jane Doe won first came to the LAPD in 2004, which was very timely after her 2003 allegations, um, there's no question that Scientology influenced that LAPD investigation, which was rapidly closed. Uh, and I know they didn't get into that too much in the trial, but there's evidence of that. The question then is when these women finally learned about each other in 2016 and then decided to go to the LAPD, were their concerns about Reyes related to Scientology? I don't think so. It was more they were just bewildered by the things that were going wrong. And one thing we heard about in the trial that, that I have, I think I had reported about earlier was just to give you an example. One of the things they, you know, you know, the difficulty in a case like this, it's, you know, nobody else is present besides the defendant and the victim, right? And there's, there's, after all this many years, there's no physical evidence. So that the police need to find some other evidence to bolster the case. And one way they do that is they ask these people to make what are called pretext calls. And that is they ask them to call Danny Masterson or people close to Danny Masterson without telling them they're being audio recorded so that then they might say something incriminating on tape. So these women were asked to do that by the LAPD, and it did result in some interesting material that did make its way to the trial. But one thing that happened was Esther Reyes arranged for them to have a phone number that they could use on their own device. And one of the, I think it was Jane Doe One, entered that number into Google and it immediately came up, don't answer, it's a cop phone. And they were absolutely stunned. And and Deputy DA Mueller was able to bring this out in testimony. If you remember, Brittany, he asked uh, Detective Reyes about this directly. And she said, yeah, that happened. We don't know why. It was bizarre. She just made it sound like it was a, you know, random mistake or something. But you have to understand you know, what I always try to remind people, and I know it, it came up in court, but what we always have to remind ourselves, is these women were terrified to go to the LAPD because they had heard so many stories about the LAPD being co-opted by Scientology. And you know who told them that? 
the LAPD itself, when they went to report in 2016, even though these crimes occurred in Hollywood where Danny had lived those years earlier, they were told the Hollywood division was so corrupt that they had to secretly handle it out of the downtown robbery homicide division was where Detective Reyes was. And we have evidence that the Hollywood division was completely blindsided by that. So these women were not only terrified of Scientology, they were terrified of the LAPD. And when something like that comes up where the phone number they give you to use is already a burned number from a previous sting, you can understand why these women were like, we don't know about this detective. Can we have a different one, please? And and when they got Detective Vargas, it seemed like a lot more progress was made on the case. A lot more witnesses were contacted, a lot more testimony. So I think from that perspective, you know, these women felt like, that that was a good thing, that they spoke up, they spoke to the chief, and they got that change. But then when it came to the trial, Brittany, you saw how D.A. Mueller was was very careful about it. He, he had to walk a fine line where he needed Reyes and Vargas to corroborate certain things, but he really didn't want to get into the whole thing about was Reyes co-opted, incompetent, was she was she fine and the women were mistaken? I mean, that was always kind of in the background and very rarely came up. And when it did, Cohen, you know, defense attorney Cohen was there to like, you know, attack them. Are you attacking a police officer? You know, so that was kind of an interesting sort of undercurrent that went throughout a lot of the trial. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves. Feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. In the next part of our conversation, I asked Tony about the changes to Danny Masterson's defense team in the months after his indictment. Well, there were big differences. And, you know, Tom Mesro, of course, is one of the most well-known defense attorneys in the, in the country. He's known for his big cases like Michael Jackson and Robert Blake and Bill Cosby. And it was interesting, about, a, I don't know, six months before the preliminary hearing, something like that, which was, you're right, last May in, in Los Angeles, he gave an interview to to a, a podcaster, and they talked about his career, but he really made a point about how he's a preliminary hearing specialist. And you hire Tom Mesro in part because you want him to kill the case so badly in the prelim that it never makes it to trial, or it it by the time it gets to trial, it's in such bad shape you'll you know you'll be exonerated. So he talked about that openly, and I wondered. Okay, so is that why he's been brought in on Danny? And so he he was the person cross-examining the Jane Doe's in the preliminary hearing. Um, and also, the biggest difference was the theory that Mesro was very openly stating in court at that time was that the real target was not Danny Masterson, it was Scientology, and that this was a plot cooked up by Leah Remini, who had recruited these women to lie about Danny in order to bring down Scientology. That's the theory that Mesro was very open about in pretrial hearings and then, you know, at the preliminary hearing. And he was he was rough, really rough on these women in, in cross-examination 
Although I will give him, he's he's a really he's really good on style. He doesn't appear to be beating up the witnesses as he's really challenging them. He's very good at that. I give him a lot of points on that. And uh, he made it rough on them, but they they came through okay. And of course, the prelim has a lower standard. That was May twenty one. Around October, November 21, we saw that Danny added two more attorneys, Sean Hawley, who's from the original O.J. Simpson Dream Team, and Philip Cohen. And then by you know that November, Hawley and Cohen were writing all the briefs, and Mesro had really taken a back seat. And then when I saw them in court again, uh, like in January and February, uh, you know, saw the you know transcripts and stuff. I wasn't there, but you could see that it was all Hawley and Cohen. Mesro was not saying a word. And then finally in May, Danny fired Mesro and it got them like a six-week delay. So it, it just seemed to me like the obvious strategy was use Mesro to see if he can harm the case in the prelim. Once that's over, just have him hang around long enough so you can get rid of him at a time to get a delay. And by that time, Holly and Cohen had really taken over. Now, then Sean Hawley just sort of disappeared. She said that she had this uh, conflict with uh, Trevor Bauer, this secret Trevor Bauer arbitration that we made public. And uh, she just sort of disappeared. No, nobody ever said anything to me. I, the week before the trial, I asked the clerk, is Sean Hawley still on the defense team? And he said yes. But then she just never showed up. Okay, so Philip Cohen took over and he made it clear from the beginning. He said outright many times, I'm not using the strategy the previous team, team did. I'm not going into the Scientology stuff. Because Mesro had actually introduced Scientology materials that really backfired on them. And Cohen kept saying he wasn't going to do that. He didn't want any Scientology at all. And he wasn't even going to, um, you know, one of the things people always remark when they hear about the basics of this case is they, they say, wait a minute, these incidents were between 2001 in 2003, and they're just being tried in 2022. And so the big question is, why did the women take so long? And of course, their answer is partly fear of Scientology retaliation. But Cohen said, I'm not going to make an issue of that time. I'm only going to look at the things they told law enforcement in the past versus what they have testified to here. That was his entire case. And he, he, he did a very good job on that. But um, that was the big difference is he really... He almost never used the word Scientology in the six weeks. I heard a theory that Cohen's insistence that Scientology was a red herring and not a real issue in this case was in its own way coming from the Church of Scientology and perhaps coming from David Miscavige himself. Do you think there's anything to that theory? It could possibly be the case that they told him, you know, take take this different tack. I had some some attorneys that I like who, who were really sharp telling me that what Cohen was doing is what they would do, is just focus on the evolution of the stories and see if you can convince the jury that their stories have changed over time. That's really all you need to do. And that's that's usually the strategy in a case like this. And so they felt that you don't need David Miscavige to explain why Cohen was doing what he was doing. But then there was something that they did that made me think, wait a minute. Cohen is doing his best not to say anything about Scientology, and he's just going to focus on what they told the police before, what they said now. And then Leah Remini came out with a tweet storm over the Halloween weekend, which that was the weekend when we had four days off. And it was kind of like the, the there was very little news about the trial. And I think Leah was concerned that people weren't thinking about it. And so on November 1st, day after Halloween, she came out with this 36-tweet tweet storm about Scientology, Danny Masterson, and, you know, trying to get people talking about it again. 
The next day in court, Philip Cohen asked for a mistrial based on the fact that she had done that. And of course, the judge and the DA were like, we don't follow Leo Remini. What's that? You know, the, the jurors aren't going to see that. And I kind of felt like that was one of the sillier things that the DA, the defense did. And I couldn't help wondering if David Miscavige had had a tantrum over Leah's tweets and had asked them to do something about it. And otherwise, I would say Cohen just seemed to be following a strategy that just sort of makes sense with these kind of cases in general. Right, which seemed to be saying that they had lied for the purpose of getting money. Right. He didn't offer it like outright too much, but you would get bits and pieces of it. And he was basically saying that, okay, something happened. I guess he did a couple of times say maybe they never happened, but basically these incidents happened, but that the women had then maybe embellished them in order to fit a particular crime they could then charge him with. And so what he did was he went back to say, look what Jane Doe 1 said in 2004, look what Jane Doe 3 said in 2017 versus what they said on the stand today. And imply that, you know, they're sort of making their stories worse now than they were before, which again, that's what you do in cases like this. That's what defense attorneys do is look for inconsistencies. And I thought the women under that cross-examination tended to do really well. I think they were able to explain themselves pretty well without arguing with him. And, uh, you know, it seemed to me like we could see what he was doing. He was trying to show the differences. But it was really minor. Like, for example, with Jane Doe 4, she said she had had three drinks at Danny's. And he was like, yeah, but didn't you tell so-and-so you had five? And it's like, okay, but whether she had three or five, she didn't consent to be raped. It just felt really minor. Well, another time he was asking Jane Doe too, I think, if she had referred to the case as our case. And she said, no, I said the case. Are you sure you didn't say our case? And I'm thinking, wait a minute, come on. Three women who have just learned about each other, who were all raped by the same guy, And you have a problem with them saying our case? I mean, it was just that level. I'm picking a couple that struck me as really minor. There were others that were more significant. I'd like to get into that testimony in just a minute. But before we do, I just wanted to ask you a little bit about the presence of Scientology and Scientologists in the courtroom, because it felt to me a little bit like a masquerade ball where some people know who is who, but certainly the jury does not. Right. Now, there was a a very distinctive looking man who was there every single day bright and early when there was only one seat for the public, it went to him because he was there first. We speculated for a long time, the journalists who were there, that this is perhaps a plant. And then you broke the news that in fact, he is working for Vicky Podboreski. Right. Back in the preliminary hearing a year ago, I was sitting in the very front row at that time and Vicky Podboreski had come down and sit next to me. Now, Vicky Podboreski is an attorney who handles a number of different things, but she's known for handling a lot of Scientology cases. And in fact, the Scientologists who might be potential witnesses in this case all went to her for representation. And we did hear about that in relation to one witness in particular in the trial. But there's no question, she works for Scientology. And she had sat down right next to me. And what I noticed, what was odd, was she had her laptop out. Her fingers were flying, typing everything up. So I was like, okay, this woman is making a transcript. Why would an attorney make a transcript? Because attorneys, of course, can just get the transcript from the court reporter. And it dawned on me what she was doing was she was providing a live play-by-play for David Miscavige. And I know that because 
I can go back to 2013 when I was at a court case in Texas and I saw an attorney that would watch the case I was observing and then run out into the hall with their cell phone. No question. David Miscavige wants minute by minute updates on what's going on. I wrote a story about that last year. Judge Omedo then issued strict new controls about electronics in her courtroom. So we were wondering what Scientology would do to keep tabs on things this time. Now, I didn't see Vicky Pabreski, but as you said, there was this tall, well-dressed man who seemed a little on the young side for an attorney, but you know, I could I could see him being a young associate at a law firm, and he was taking notes, and he would show up, like you said, every day when there was only one public seat, he would show up early enough to get it every single day. Numerous reporters asked him who he was, who he was with, if he worked in Scientology, wouldn't say a word. He made it into the LA Times. You know, Noah Goldberg wrote a story where he talked about this tall guy with his tattoos and stuff. But the reason why I am confident that he's working with Vicky Pabreski is my friend Jeffrey Augustine has been in the courtroom. And at one point, the tall attorney got a phone call. He was sitting by Jeffrey, happened to look over and saw the name Vicky Pabreski come up on the guy's phone. So, I mean, we kind of suspected that's who he was working for. So he's in there taking notes you know, relaying things to Scientology about the witnesses, about the jurors. And look, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. I want to make that clear, Brittany. There's absolutely nothing wrong with Scientology keeping tabs on this trial. Of course they would. Uh, also, Vicky Paparescu's young colleague, Dylan Millar, showed up numerous times. So it, it wasn't just this guy. That No question, Scientology had attorneys in the room uh, keeping an eye on things. And again, nothing wrong with that. But uh, they are not, Scientology is not a, a party to this case. And then at the very end, during deliberations, once the case was over, then Vicky herself made an appearance. And she came in and she was hugging the Mastersons. And as I, I pointed out in my story, it's like, look, they're Scientologists. There's nothing wrong with them being friendly to Scientology's attorney. But yeah, I mean, it underscored the fact that Scientology was a big presence in this case. There was a, a lot of Scientology in the testimony. And Scientology, of course, is very interested in the outcome. Right. And in addition to giving minute-to-minute updates to leadership and David Miscavige, do you feel that on any level their presence in the courtroom was meant to intimidate witnesses? No, I don't think they were aware of those folks. You know, witnesses are generally terrified. I mean, they walk in, they walk past us, they walk past the jury, they sit in the witness stand. They're nervous. You can see it. I don't think they're scanning the audience to see who's who. So I don't think that's the point. I think the point is David Miscavige just literally wants a minute-by-minute update on what's going on in that court. He's a micromanager. There's no question he was giving instructions to Tom Mesro and Sharon Oppenbaum. I can say that with certainty because they subpoenaed me. Last May at the preliminary hearing, they served a subpoena on me in the hallway at the courthouse. And they wanted me to turn over documents And what made the judge so angry about it, because it wasn't just me, it was the victims, the LAPD, various other people, we were all subpoenaed. And what made the judge angry was they weren't just asking for materials related to the criminal case. It says right there in the subpoena, they wanted us to turn over any documents regarding Scientology harassment of the victims, which is the subject of a completely different legal action, a lawsuit in civil court. She was so angry. She was telling them, you're trying to use the subpoena power of my court to help Scientology in an unrelated matter. So no question, Scientology has been given these attorneys orders, but with Cohen and Goldstein, if they were, it was a lot less visible. 
And with that, we conclude this episode of Jury Duty, The Trials of Weinstein and Masterson. Join us on our next installment as we hear more from Brittany Bookbinder and Tony Ortega about the Masterson trial. You can find Tony Ortega's writing and sign up for his email list at tonyortega.substack.com and you can follow him on Twitter at at TonyOrtega94. Also, if you would like to listen to these episodes early and ad-free, head over to our Jury Duty Crime Story Patreon page. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. You can find more information about these trials on our Jury Duty Crime Story Patreon page or at crimestory.com. Jury Duty is created and produced by yours truly, Carrie Antholis. This episode was reported and written by Brittany Bookbinder. It was co-produced and edited by Chris Taracone. Music for this episode was provided by Strike Audio. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you will come back for the next episode of Jury Duty, The Trials of Weinstein and Masterson.